Welcome! This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Kurt. Uh, so as we get started with the message this morning, uh, we have the wonderful Connie Baker is going to come up and share. And I had the great privilege of a week and a half ago sitting with Connie at a coffee shop and just going through this message. And I was like, this is amazing. Like as she just kind of sped right through it, I started tearing up at the end, which is like a good sign. So I've been really excited about this. And last night we were having dinner with some friends, and they were like, oh, church, are you preaching tomorrow? I'm like, no, uh, this woman Connie's preaching, it's going to be amazing. They're like, oh, what's she talking about? Like, spiritual trauma and abuse. And they were like, oh. (laughs) So in talking to Connie, I realized, because I know the content, I'm really excited, that you might be here this morning being like, oh, no, this is the wrong Sunday to pick. Um, So here's a couple of invitations for you. One, if you're like, yes, this is here for me, great, be present. But if there's any point in this where you feel triggered, you feel uncomfortable, a couple different invitations and permissions. One, you can stand up and walk out and head outside. It's nice outside, head outside. Take the space you need for yourself. You also have permission if you don't want to do that, you can mentally check out for a little bit. Doodle, write on your bulletin, do what you need to do to make sure that you're in a safe place. Also, if you're like, no, I'm not going to be triggered, hold on. (laughs) Maybe you will, and that's okay too. And if that surprises you, again, permission to go out and walk out. I think this is going to be amazing. Here's the big thing I want to tell you. Last time I introduced Connie, I said I've never known someone in such a short period of time who has told me to shut up so frequently. And it's all like playful, because I like I tend to say things that aren't serious, and people are like, are you serious? And I think that's funny. And every time I was just like, shut up. <laughs> but here's the real secret you need to know. When we met at the coffee shop, I went to like go order my coffee, and she's like, that's the one, the bald one I told you about. And the lady gave me a gift card that she had shown up early to pre-purchase. She's super nice, and she doesn't want you to know that. And generous and kind. So, uh, don't let her fool you. Would you welcome Connie Baker? It was very unfortunate that I actually put some stuff in writing this week, too, that Kurt's now holding over my head, that I actually said something nice. So, that's just, I have a reputation to uphold here. Um, oh, you guys, welcome. This is a really exciting day for me personally. Um, Oh my goodness. And you don't have to stand here the whole time. Okay, but you can, because he's handsome and he's my arm candy. Um, but he's, he's going to be reading some passages for me. So um, today is a big day for me. Um, first of all, I want to know how many of you have ever heard a message in a church on, well, let's just let's make it broader. Who have you ever heard speak on? religious abuse. Have you heard anybody speak on this direct topic before? Raise your hand, because some of you have. Alright, I got friends out there. I know you listen to me. Um, Alright, how many of you have ever heard this on a sermon on a Sunday morning? Come on. Oh, God, we've got one. That makes my heart happy, actually. One. One person. How many of you heard a woman speak on this topic on a Sunday morning? Oh, man. Okay, 
I'm excited, but I want to say this, get this very clear. Somebody is here that has paved the way that has the vision for this. It wasn't me. I mean, I'm thrilled to be here. But I just want to acknowledge part of what Kurt and Sarah and the whole team, Jonathan, have created here at Cascade has paved the way for something like this. And it's a big deal. Those of you raised in the church, you kind of get this. Some of you weren't, you know, haven't been around very long. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, I hope so. We'll find out, right? So, but it's, I think it's just worth acknowledging that this, this road has been paved and uh, and Kurt didn't even say why he actually teared up at the end. I'm suspicious. It may not have been because he was touched. Who knows? Okay. Uh, all right. Come with me now while I remember an event in my life uh, that happened almost 28 years ago. I lay completely alone on the floor of the church basement, shaking uncontrollably, nauseated, curled into a fetal position. I was 25 years old. I was waiting to hear my sentence from the pastors of my church. I had been sexually abused by one of their team, a powerful pastor, 18 years older than me, married with several children. He had groomed me sexually and abused me for nine months. He had left the state and no one knew where he was. So I was there waiting to face trial. What would they do? Would the leadership blame me? Protect me? Throw me out? Help me try to heal? This memory is one of the most vivid from a period of my life full of painful memories. How did this happen? How did a place that should have been safe, a place that had given my, me a full, happy life, a social network, meaning, purpose, a place of belonging, opportunities for leadership and contribution, how did this place become full of terror, shame, and abuse? We're going to talk today about religious abuse. It's a thing. It's a real thing. I wish I could say that my story was unique, one of a kind, doesn't happen. That would not be the truth. 40 to 60 years ago, in that range, our, our culture started talking about sexual abuse. We now, as a society, know and understand a whole lot more about the dynamics of that thing. It has a context, it has a progression, and it has devastating outcomes. We are right now just barely, barely starting a cultural conversation about this thing we call religious abuse. Even though it's existed for millennia, as long as religion has been around. It too, religious abuse, has a context, a progression, and devastating outcomes. We're watching the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, and we are talking about it. I've been working on this material that I've developed, you guys are getting a little sliver this morning, um, for 14 years. And when I used to start talking about this 14 years ago, people would go, religious abuse. What, spiritual abuse, what, what do you mean? I now say it and more and more people go, oh my goodness, 
I'm so glad someone's speaking to this. Now, there's still people who look at me blankly and go, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> you know, don't, don't, they don't get it, and that's fine. Part of me is really glad they don't get it. Probably means they haven't been through it. Um, so, I've been working on this and um, for a long time, and I've got a bunch of material, and we are going to rip through some of these parts. We're gonna, we're gonna fly through some. So hang on, and if you don't absorb everything, you have a handout. You guys all get a little handout when you came in. Um, of some definitions. These are the really dense things I'm gonna kind of fly through, so you can kind of go home and digest some of this if you want to. All right, what is this thing? What is this thing we call religious abuse? All right, let's just read this through. By definition, any abuse, not just religious abuse, consists of some type of power differential where one person has more power than the other and hurts the other person with that power. All right, we're gonna develop this more in a few minutes. This is true of religious, uh, excuse me, of spiritual abuse. I use those terms synonymously, by the way, just whatever comes to mind, so there's not a distinction. Uh, religious abuse and spiritual abuse. This power can be perceived or real. Okay, that's just a whole truckload in and of itself, right? Okay, but just keep that in mind. Power isn't always actual. It can be a perception of someone having more power than you. All right, this power can be held by one religious person, a small or large group of religious people, or the implicit rules of the whole organization. So that's where the power lies. The, the, person or organization with the power. All right, the abusive person or institution has some sort of power that the abused person does not have, all right? And they use that power in the religious abuse specifically, usually leveraging religious ideas or the idea of God to manipulate, control, hurt, exploit, suppress, silence or weaken the other person. This is pretty dense, isn't it? All right? You guys tracking with me though? Big picture, one person or organization has more power than another. Remember, religious abuse can take all kinds of forms. Sexual assault is only one piece of a very big pie. It's part of my story. But a lot of the worst stories I hear from my clients, my friends, uh, contacts that I've made, don't, don't have any sexual assault element to them. It can be ex excommunication. It can take the form of psychological manipulation, shaming, blame shifting, silencing, financial exploitation. I mean, the list is long. So I want to make clear that the, the, the sexual assault end of this is only one piece of the pie. It can take all kinds of forms. Where can these things happen? Well, my story happened within the context of a church. Um, and that's usually often where we think of it. I want to stop for a minute. Before we go on to a long, longer list, Kurt and I have had quite in-depth conversations about the fact that nowhere is exempt from religious abuse. No church, no organization, Cascade is not exempt. It can, and I'm gonna say has happened, 
because we are humans trying to navigate differences in power in different relationships and within this structure. The healthy part that I love about Cascade is, is that the leadership actually wants somebody talking about this explicitly. And so we can actually look and say, oh, I think that's actually what just happened right there. So, okay, it can happen in churches anywhere. Uh, another form, uh, families. This is the one that goes probably the deepest for me in the stories I hear because you know, as a therapist, I look and I see early brain wiring from childhood, and when, when spiritual abuse is a part of that mix, it is, it is a tangled mess to, to get untangled. It's a hard road. It can be done, but it's a hard road. It can happen in marriages where there's power differential and God's being used to control. Church denominations, bigger structures than a local church. Uh, mission agencies, this gets really sticky. You're out isolated in a foreign country on a team that may or may not be functional. Oh my goodness, there's all kinds of potentials here. Uh, small groups, some of them. Some of the most hair-raising stories I've heard are from small groups, where within a small group someone has been targeted and leveraged and power uh, misused against them. Places of employment, if, it's a, if it has a religious uh, foundation to it, it can be a place of employment. Schools and colleges, news has been breaking the last many years and the last couple weeks in this regard. Uh, counseling offices, oh, heard one, just, I was reminded of one just last Sunday uh, as I was talking with a friend, how devastating a therapist who uses God to leverage power against their client is just, ugh, makes me sick. Anyway, so it can happen there. It can happen in friendships, you guys. If there's a power differential in friendships, it can happen within just two people, two friends. It can happen in any, any religious, social structure, institution, or organization. That's my point. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Before we go much further, I want to talk about an idea of spectrum because everything I'm going to talk about so far that I have and that I will talk about has to do with spectrum. In the following discussion, everything's on a spectrum. Every church or religious organization is on a spectrum. Every leader is on a spectrum. You don't have a non-abusive leader and an abusive leader. You. All of us are somewhere on the spectrum. I'm somewhere on the spectrum. I try real hard to move toward the non-abusive and using my power well, but I do not always do it right. Everybody is on a spectrum. Churches and individuals are rarely completely free of potential abuse or completely abusive. And some of us with black and white thinking really struggle with that. We want to make them the pure bad guys and I'll give that to you for right now, <laughs> if you've been through it. But eventually, you've got to modify that and bring it more to reality, to the spectrum thinking. There are no right churches, wrong churches for people to attend. I have my opinions about some, and even when I'm asked, I don't give them, because that is for you to figure out. It, you know, how, how does that organization work for you? I just want to remind you, in this whole discussion, we're dealing in shades of gray and degrees. Does that make sense? Okay, all right, let's talk about power differential. Let's go back to this idea because it's the foundation of what constitutes abuse and I'm uh, tailoring this specifically for religious abuse. 
All right, power differentials when someone or institution has more power than someone else. Note, power is not wrong. I've been given a degree of power by standing up here and holding this mic. I hope I use that in a worthy manner and in a, in a manner that's constructive and helpful. Power, we don't, you guys, we do not like talking about power in the church. It's a really uncomfortable topic. I wish, I wish we would talk much, much more about differences in power. They are. They exist. So let's talk about them. It's not wrong. So let's look at how somebody might have more power than another. First of all, number one, and this is also on your handout, um, a, a power by position of authority or control. Okay, in church circles, pastors, priests, denominational leaders, speakers, teachers, board members, Sunday school teachers, uh, small group leaders. All right, so you can have more power than another person by a position. That's very straightforward, right? Okay, good. Number two, power by demographics. Oh, we got all kinds of stuff here. Age difference. Now this gets a little, this gets really subjective and uh, uh, open to interpretation. At what age does a person have the most power? Because in our culture specifically, we bell curve. And as we age, the, the society tends to grant less power to us uh, as, a, as a demographic. So, but age does matter. I have more power than a little four-year-old that walks up to me, psychologically, uh, mentally, hopefully, um, <laughs> physically I'm larger, you know, and all those things. So I have more power. The age difference. The gender. Do we need to talk about where, which way this falls in church circles? <laughs> Uh, as a, there are exceptions to all of these, but as a general rule, males carry more power in a religious structure. They're historically patriarchal. Two, marital status. I find this so fascinating. I've been raised in evangelicalism, and there is some unwritten rule somewhere that says married women have more power than single women. They're all not, especially you women know this, right? You know it to be true, especially you single women or divorced women. When you get that, when you get that title of marriage taken off of you, it's done. You have, everybody feels your drop in status and power. Crazy. Why? It's there. Let's just talk about this. Let's say it. Race. It's a big deal. Now, are there exceptions? Sure. If I walk into a large... Oh, uh, church of color, I may have less power just because I'm the only one, but of all things being equal, race plays into this, and there's white privilege that's very clear. Sexual orientation. How many churches do you know where people in the LGBTQ movement are in high leadership positions? Only a handful, right? And rarely in conservative circles. Uh, education is another demographic. If, if somebody has more education than another, that acknowledges power. So that follows. Okay, so that's demographics. That's all under demographics. Does that make sense? Who has more power? Number three, power by use of physical force, intimidation, or a weapon. 
That's pretty straightforward. I like to say that I can, you know, I work out at the gym with my husband, and you know, I'm like, I'm strong, and I'm like, I'm gonna take you out. Did you look at him? That ain't happening, okay? Not happening. Uh, so there's a power differential there. Then you got four, uh, power by uh, position of financial, academic, or career control. Somebody is in charge of your employment, your finances, your transcripts, they've got power. Five, personal appearance. This gets super subjective, you guys, so take it wherever you want. But there's still factors. Uh, physical appearance, um, personal presence, all, the, all these fall under personal presence. Physical appearance, uh, who's prettier, who's better looking, powerful personality, by the way, sometimes better looking for women can work against them if they're not taken seriously because of it. So there again, there's all kinds of factors here. Uh, skill at manipulation. Oh my goodness, some people are just good at it. I don't actually endorse that one. That actually, I think, does kind of have a little problem to it. Some people are just really skilled. That's fine to be skilled if you're not using that. Um, all right, then just informally influential, you know? The sweet church lady whose father founded the pastor founded the church decades ago and was the pastor, and she doesn't like the blue carpet and says, oh, "I'm not fond of the blue." And everybody knows there's not going to be blue carpet in the church. Okay, it's informal. If somebody has control over your reputation or your social support, that's also a personal presence. And number six, power by just having given someone trust, for better or worse. For earned or no, if we give someone trust, we give them a degree of power. All right, and then there's all kinds of other factors, but I'm trying to just go over the main ones today. How do people have have different levels of power in a in a relationship? Okay, and there are usually multiple combinations in every relationship. And remember, a lot of this is about perception. Let's take Kurt and I. Okay, just because I love to pick on him. He has the role of pastor, all right? So that immediately, that role pops him up in power with me, over me. I'm, I know him in a church context. He is my pastor. He's male. So, especially within this context, and there again, I'm not putting this on Kurt, I'm just talking historically, female's gonna have less power. Age, now this is an interesting one, right? Who has more power, Kurt or me? I think it's up for grabs. Because some of you may go, Connie, look at your grade. You are on your way out, girl. You know, you're, you're on the slippery slope down. Kurt has more power. You may look at power, look at Kurt and say, oh, he's a pup. He's, you know, Connie has more power than him. That's that's up for interpretation, right? Okay. He's stronger physically. At least he appears to be. <laughs> um, I, I'm sorry. Did I say that? I'm sorry. Um, Kurt's outgoing, personable. I'm shy, timid. <laughs> Go ahead and laugh. All right, so you see, there's, there's, there's fluctuation in here. All right. Did you guys know as I'm going through these, this is not just about church. This has to do with all domains of life. All our interpersonal relationships, friendships, workplace, family, marriage, neighborhood, community, government, law. It, it, these are applicable all over. I'm applying them to religious context. 
So we all have power. Let's step back for a second. Let's remember we all have power. And we all misuse our power at some time. If you're a parent, you have power. And you've misused your power at some time. There's no way around it. So let's just, let's just sit with that and look. No shame. No guilt. No freaking out about it. Let's just look at it and say, yes, it happens. And it does us no good to deny our power or pretend like it doesn't exist. That's a really important thing. This is getting sucked into the blindness of privilege. If we just think, oh, I don't really have that kind of power, figure out where you've got the power. It's important that you know. It's important for the people around you. All right. Let's go ahead. Oh, husband here. Are we ready? Let's do this. I've asked him to come up and read. Uh, a passage from Matthew 23 that I historically have just loved. Um, and um, I'm, he's going to read, and, and as he reads, I'm going to interrupt him. I mean, I'm going to interject ideas. At this least. not new for us. <laughs> at least I'm going to give a warning, right? Okay. Um, all right, go ahead. I'm just going to take a look at this passage. It's, it's very rich in the context that we're talking about here. Matthew 23. Verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Okay, hold on. All right, right there. Do you hear the power? Jesus is talking about the religious leaders. He's saying, They sit in Moses' seat. He didn't say, Well, that's good or bad. He's just saying they do. It just is. All right, go ahead. Notice that power. So, you must be careful to do everything they tell you. All right. Interesting point here. Pharisees are the bad guys, remember? Jesus is saying, actually do it. This tells us that abusive religious leaders may be saying things that are actually true. Okay? A lot of times we look at cults. I know when I was a kid, I thought a cult was just a bunch of bad theology. A cult has way more to it than that. And a cult is a far end of religious abuse. It has to do with a misuse of power over people. But the, these religious leaders are actually saying right theology. Jesus is saying, listen to what they say and do what they tell you. Okay. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. All right, hold on just a second. They use that power, usually using religious ideas or God, remember that point? And they are using it to manipulate, control, hurt, exploit, silence, suppress, it, suppress, and weaken the other person. This load they're put, just dropping on these people. All right. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. All right. Upcoming here. Is you guys catching all the subtleties in here about power and control and what the where, what the Pharisees are about? There's there's going to be a great list of power maneuvers here coming up. 
They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Jesus here is, is leveling the playing field. He's trying to neutralize inappropriate religious power. You see that? He said, so keep, keep going. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The right. greatest among you will be your servant. All right, hold just a second. This, here we start coming into uh, a really familiar verse, but I want you to hear the context of this, of this passage right here. The greatest among you will be your servant. Some of you have heard of that one, right? All right, go ahead. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right. Hear that context? It's in, it's, this is in contrast to those who are misusing power. This idea of servanthood and humbling and exalting. Jesus goes on the rest of this chapter. We won't read the whole thing. Man, he goes after these guys. He calls them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs, snakes, brood of vipers. Ooh. Seven times Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Seven times he, he says that over and over. And I looked up some synonyms for woe. Misery, sorrow, distress, wretchedness, unhappiness, heartache, heartbreak, despondency, and despair. It's not happy. All right. Whoa. He is, he's saying, this is what's coming on you due to your misuse of power. Woe to you, religious abusers. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven, and teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like the whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You snakes, you brood of vipers. Man, he is going after them. He's mad. And he don't, Jesus only really gets worked up a couple times in the gospel, Gospels. <laughs> this time he's not overturning tables that we know of, but that's the other time. It's a big deal. And it's about, what is it he's worked up about? He's worked up about religious abuse. It's about religious systems and religious leaders using power destructively in the name of God. And Jesus tells him he's not happy. My husband affectionately refers to this as Jesus kicking their religious assets. <laughs> I said that. I said it. Let's go back and quickly review the definition because I want you now to tie this in with Matthew 23 in mind. Any abuse consists of some type of power differential where one person has more control than the other and hurts the other person with that power. This is true of spiritual abuse. This power can be perceived or real. This power can be held by one religious person, a smaller, large group of religious people, or the implicit rules of the whole religious organization. Pharisees and Judaism are right there. 
The abusive in person or institution has some sort of power that the abused person does not have, and they use that power, usually leveraging religious ideas or the idea of God, to manipulate, control, hurt, exploit, suppress, silence, or weaken the other person. So that was then, two millennia ago. What does this have to do with us now? We often hear sermons about the Pharisees, those bad Pharisees. Here's what we forget. They were the equivalent of the established church leadership. They're the equivalent of evangelical pastors. They were the pastors. They were the religious leaders. And I'm not putting down pastors here. I'm just saying they were unquestioned. They were respected and honored. In the minds of the common, devout, faithful Jew, they weren't the bad guys. They were the good guys. We talk about them now, and it's, a, you know, pharisaical. as everybody goes, oh, yeah, a hypocrite. That's not who they were at the time. They were the accepted leadership. This is messy, you guys. I want to bring us back to the idea to remember we all have power and we all misuse it at some time. Are we owning our power? Are we utilizing it for good? Religious systems and religious leaders do an overwhelming amount of damage. I want to talk, finish the story about the, the modern day story, my story. Back to me in the basement of the church, shaking, nauseated in a fetal position. From the time I was 19 until I was 25, I had given this group of elders a huge amount of trust. I respected them. I had deep affection for them. I listened to them. They spoke for God. So what happened when I came to them and told my story? They blamed me. They viewed it as an affair. They were angry at me and, said, and showed it. They said I was a threat to every married woman. They said I needed to leave the church, basically everything that I had built my life on and around, and that was meaningful to me. I needed to leave so the pastor and his family could heal. They had me stand up in front of the congregation and tell 500 people that it was my fault that I had been involved in an emotional affair. I asked forgiveness. In the months following, it is hard to describe the extent of my brokenness and confusion. My reputation and identity had been completely shattered. I had no idea who I was anymore. I grieved the life I had been forced to leave. I became profoundly depressed and went through severe panic attacks. In the years that followed, I still had no idea what had happened to me. It was 1990 and nobody was talking about spiritual abuse. It took me three years to realize that I had been sexually abused. The understanding of spiritual abuse took much, much longer and was much messier. The following years consisted of fighting for physical and emotional survival. I went to individual counseling, group counseling, and finally began to heal and thrive. I realized that in the overall impact of what had happened to me, the sexual abuse probably accounted for only about 25% of the damage done to me. 
75% of the damage had to do with the way the pastors dealt with it. That is what created the greatest trauma and the most devastating spiritual destruction. Seven years later, I gained the health and strength and courage to return and talk to the group of pastors about what had happened and its impact on me. I expected nothing. I did not need anything from them. I retained a small strand of hope that they would somehow see the truth of the damage they had done. I did not want it repeated with anyone ever. I was gracious and kind, but very direct as I explained the dynamic of sexual abuse and their role in the damage done to me. Here was their response. This is seven years later. One of them said that I was still not taking responsibility for my part. One said he would do it just the same if he had to do it all over again. Only one pastor out of about five of them that were originally there at the time chose to hear and truly understand what had happened. And I left feeling great. It was sad, but I was at peace. I had said my truth, I had kept my integrity, I hadn't needed and or expected anything from them, and it's a good thing I didn't. In the last 28 years, I have married, become a mom, become a mental health therapist, done the roller coaster of major faith shifts, sorted out, sometimes with counseling, the catastrophic damage done to me emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And I have healed. There is hope. This is my story, but there's hope for all of us, whether your story is like mine or not. In each of the areas that have been damaged or destroyed, goodness, grace, and transformation have taken place. I now have the privilege of walking with those whose lives have been injured or broken at some point by spiritual abuse. There is hope. to know that this is why I am compelled to speak to religious abuse. Its dynamics, its carnage, and its path to healing. It is also why I'm teaching a class the next four weeks here at Cascade on religious abuse, recovery, and awareness. I want you guys to walk away today with hope and a site for healing. If you're in that depth part of the cycle that Kurt was talking about, the communion. The gospel is the resurrection and hope in that. Would you stand with me for the benediction? In light of what we've heard today, 
May we join Jesus in defending the powerless. May we be wise and aware of those who are hurting us and hurting those we care about. May we advocate for those who have no voice, even in the church. May we support those who have been wounded by the institutions and people that should have been, by people that have, should, should have been safe places. And may we use the power that has been graciously given to us in this life with humility, sobriety, and love. Have a great Sunday. See you next week.